You can be seated. The Bible was an inspired book, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and given written expression by humble men, earthy men, who were intimately con connected to the natural world around them. The world of land and sea and livestock and fish and crops and farms and plows, things like that. And because of this, much of their terminology and teaching is couched in earthly language, making use of natural phenomenon and all kinds of familiar objects from the outdoors. Knowing the language and lifestyle of your audience is always a couple of the most important factors in effective communication. It's always been the case. So when the Son of God came into the world, he too chose to use many common objects and experiences from the natural world to communicate to us deep spiritual truth. In John 10, Jesus is wanting to help us understand who he is and why he came and why that should matter to us. And so he uses some very common metaphors. The metaphor of a shepherd and his sheep. Now, I need to say from the outset here that it's important to establish the fact that when we begin talking about shepherding, we need to understand that shepherding is really a lordship issue. That occurred to me this week. I mean, I said last week, my goal here is to slow down and to take this text, and, and I've been trying to move a little faster through John so we can get through it before my granddaughter is old enough to understand what I'm saying. But um, I want to take it and kind of get all of these chapters and squeeze it out, but especially this section, just squeeze it and get all that we can out of it so that we can see the glory of Christ and his love and care and sacrifice for his people. He loves you. He loves you. But if we're going to understand that fully, then we need to understand that shepherding is a lordship issue. Shepherds always relate to their sheep as their leader. A shepherd never gets up in the morning and goes out to the sheep pen and says, hey, you guys, what do you want to do today? Where do you want to go? And who wants to take the lead? You know, I always lead. Why don't we have somebody else lead today? You know, Bonnie, the sheep, why don't you lead today? Let's see where she leads us. Oh, we're in trouble now. No, that's not how the shepherd operates. The shepherd calls the shots. He's the leader. He's their master. He's their lord. They graze where he wants them to graze, and it's always the greenest pastures. They drink where he leads them to drink, and it's always the safest place. They obey his voice, and they live in the joy of obeying him. Now, I know that in evangelical Christianity right now, even in very conservative circles, even in the biblical counseling movement, uh, or at least small sections of it, the idea of obedience to God is kind of out of fashion. And honestly, that's, I don't want to be crude, but that's, that's dumb. That's dangerous. It's dangerous. I get it. We can emphasize obedience too much. 
But if we emphasize it too little, we've lost. We're lost. All of this serves as a picture of God's relationship with his people. He is our Lord, our master, our king. He rules over us with authority, wisdom, and strength, and he requires that we obey. I mean, witness, for example, the careful wording of the great commission that Jesus gave to his disciples before he ascended into heaven. He said, all authority is given to me in heaven and in earth. Therefore, go and make disciples, teaching them what? Teaching them teaching them soteriology, teaching them theology proper, teach them church history, teach them the difference between superlapsarianism and infralapsarianism and Calvinism versus Arminianism. And no, teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. Teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. You see, he is calling all men to willingly submit to his rule, his shepherding rule over their lives. In fact, on a number of occasions, he makes, he makes obedience kind of a litmus test for the authenticity of a person's relationship with him. For example, he says in Luke chapter 6, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do the things that I say? Why do you call me your Lord and you're not willing to obey? See, they were, they were wanting to attach themselves to him because he was a healer. He was the greatest teacher anybody had ever heard. He was speaking with authority, not like the, the Pharisees and the scribes who had no authority of their own. He had authority in himself because he is God. And they liked that. They liked all the food that he produced. He liked, they liked the healings that he did, and they wanted to be there. In fact, even, even after Jesus left the scene, Pentecost came, the church began. My children and I have been, been reading through the book of Acts together, and um, when we get to, to Pentecost, Pentecost, everybody is coming. Everybody. I mean, Jews are repenting. Even people who had Jesus nailed to the cross, they're repenting. 3,000 were saved. Then 5,000 were also saved, baptized, entered into the church. I mean, there was massive, explosive growth. And then we come to chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. And the Lord strikes them dead for what seems like a menial thing, a small thing. You know what God's saying? Don't mess with me. Don't mess with my church. This is not just about friendship with the great food dispenser from the sky. You are coming into relationship with a holy God. And the text says, fear gripped everyone. And the world held them in high esteem. But from that point on, they were unwilling to join him. That's the way God wanted it. These are hard things. These are hard things. He intends to rule us. He is calling all men everywhere to repent and submit our lives, our hopes, our ambitions, our dreams to him. And this is where the rub is, isn't it? And this is where human nature rebels against its maker. Human beings love autonomy. We love to be free. We love our freedom and independence. We, we want to be free to do it as we please without anybody telling us what to do. So now our culture's kind of themes here, where our country is going and where it has been going for some time, 
Our culture says things like this. No one has the right to tell me what to do with my body, my baby, my sexuality, my money, my food, my entertainment. I have a, the right to do as I please. I have the right to marry who I please, divorce when I please, and most recently in the news, I have the freedom to die when it is most convenient for me. And to such people, Jesus boldly and unapologetically says to them two words, follow me. <laughs> follow me. Drop your nets. You're good at that. Forget about it. Follow me. Follow me. Tax collector, quit counting money, robbing people. Follow me. And they left. Just left. Give up everything to follow him. Now, that's why those stories are here. Jesus came to be Israel's shepherd. And so when he says in verse 1, and so we haven't actually looked at the text yet, uh, John chapter 10, verse 1, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter into the door, enter by the door, but into the fold, uh, into the fold of the sheep, but climbs over some other way, he is a thief and a robber, but he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. What's Jesus saying? Jesus saying, he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. When he says that, He's stating in a kind of a figurative manner that he had come as God's authoritative representative, the Messiah. He came to shepherd God's people, Israel. He came as the authorized caretaker of God's flock. But they, like so many in our day, refused to follow him. Because love men, men love darkness rather than light. He came into his own, and his own did not receive him. But to those who received him, to them he gave the right to be called children of God. Sheep. His sheep. And so you see, the reality is, hmm, this is speaking about all of us. And Jesus came to shepherd all of us. The question that naturally arises is, um, Jesus says, follow me. The question is, why? Why? Why should I follow you? Why should I follow Jesus? Why should I drop my nets? Why should I give up my other ambitions to follow you? Why should I give up my right to do as I please and follow Jesus instead? Honestly, that's a good question. It's a good question. And perhaps that's one of the reasons Jesus chose to present himself as the shepherd not just a shepherd, but the good shepherd. Follow me. Why? Well, there are many ways to answer that question. Because it will glorify the Father. And through it, the Father will glorify me. Those are answers, biblical, theologically correct answers. But there's a much more intimate and personal answer to that question, and it's this. Because it's good for you. It's good for you. 
There's no better way to live. There's no safer way. There's no more blessed way to live than to follow this shepherd. Hard? Yeah. Blessed? Unbelievably. So you see, the reality is we all need a shepherd. Remember the prophet Isaiah? He kind of summarized the problem in Isaiah 53 when he's talking about the Messiah and why we need him. He says this, and you can quote it with me. All we like sheep have done what? Gone astray. How many of us have gone astray? (laughs) All. What does all mean in the Hebrew? All. That's right. Good class. Good Hebrew students. Each of us have turned to his own way. How many of us? Each of us. That's the human condition. We don't get born into this world loving Jesus. Our heart has to be transformed. And God does that by his grace through the Messiah, the shepherd. Each of us has turned to his own way. That's not a good thing. It's not a good thing for a sheep to wander off doing his own thing. Mary Miller this week sent me an article about Shrek the sheep, not the cartoon character or whatever he was, movie I don't know. Shrek the sheep. Sheep, uh, Shrek was, uh, he's no ordinary sheep. Shrek, you can look him up online. Not now. But later, look him up online. He's a kind of sheep that lives in the highlands of New Zealand, and he produced a highly desirable merino wool. Now, those of you who are backpackers, backpackers are going, or hikers, I know what that is. Merino wool is the most desirable kind of fabric to wear when you are hiking or climbing or anything like that because you can, it's kind of gross, but you can wear it for weeks and it'll never smell bad. And you go down to backwoods, you want to buy a new one? You're going to be paying between $70 and $90 for a T-shirt. So these sheep, I mean, Highly prized sheep. Well, Shrek, something about Shrek's personality, he didn't like anybody telling him what to do. (laughs) It's a true story. It came shearing time. Shrek ran for his life. He ran into the woods. He found a cave, and he hid out for seven years. Nobody saw him. When they found him, he was a giant puffball with nothing but two little eyes that he could hardly see and little legs poking out of the bottom. When they finally corralled him back, they actually had to carry him back. When they carried him back, he was still alive. He, he survived just by foraging for stuff on the ground. He wasn't, well, obviously he didn't take care of himself out there. But somehow when he managed to, um, they managed to find him and bring him back, they sheared him and unbelievably he produced 60 pounds of wool. I mean, the poor thing could hardly walk. And if he had gotten near a pond or a stream, if he had fallen in, he, he would have become a, a, a bobber or a sinker or something. He, he would have been gone. I mean, the metaphor of sheep in our passage is here to speak of people's helplessness and our need for guidance. We all need guidance, and we're all looking for guidance. 
It's not a matter of, do you seek counsel? The question is, where do you seek counsel? That's why magazines on the shelf are so popular and they make, magazine publishers make so much money. Everybody's looking for counsel. How can I be healthier? How can I be sexier? How can I be more productive and profitable? How can I, whatever it is, and we want counsel. We want, how do I live? How do I take care of my health? How do I make marriage work? How do I raise my kids or teach them to raise themselves or whatever it is, in three easy steps. This is what the metaphor of sheep and shepherd is about. Every human being needs guidance. Why should Jesus be your shepherd? Why should he be your guide instead of you or Oprah or Dr. Phil or someone else? It has been said Listen carefully. The lot of any sheep depends on the type of man who owns it. The lot, or that, that is it's an English word means welfare. The lot of any sheep depends on the type of man who owns it. Who owns you? Who are you following? In our case, the shepherd who would own us is none other than God himself who is infinite in all of his perfections and who loves us with an everlasting love. So to say that the Lord is my shepherd is to delight in the reality that a mere mortal, me, has become the cherished object of divine diligence. The perfect description of a shepherd. Diligence taking care of the sheep, going before the sheep, chasing off the enemies of the sheep, salting the ground to help the sheep, keeping them away from fast-moving water, leading them to green pastures, healing his hurts and his scars and his wounds. It's constant diligence. But our shepherd, the Lord Jesus, we become his cherished objects of divine diligence. Jesus is not a stingy savior, nor is he a lazy one. He works hard on our benefit, for our benefit. He intercedes for us day and night. He sends us his spirit. He's given us his word and the church. All things for life and godliness. And this is what we see in John chapter 10. Jesus is the good shepherd who, here are the categories that I see, who calls us, loves us, leads us, provides for us, protects us, protects us, and then dies for us. And these are just the ones that I see in this text. I, I think this series of messages is going to go further because he also rises again, ascends into heaven, and is coming back for his flock. That's the whole picture. How many weeks is this going to take? Hmm? I don't know, but it's... I'm about six weeks ahead on this, and it's glorious. Now, I suspect it's going to take a few weeks at least to get through the basics here. So let's just jump right in and begin considering why we should give up the pretense of self-ownership and self-leadership and give ourselves completely to the care of the good shepherd. And so if you're taking notes, point one, and I'll just give you an update here or a, a little preview. There's only going to be one today, so you can use the rest of your notes for this. Point one... The good shepherd calls his sheep. Calls, C-A-L-L-S, calls his sheep. 
In verses 1 through 3, I just read them to you. Verse 2, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name. And he leads them out. What does this mean? Now, we've kind of had some fun with this. Me and Matt Scheffler, he's always, you know, he's the, the English student, him and his wife. And, you know, is, is this an allegory? Are there metaphors, similes? What's in, what's in this? I found a, 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 a scholar this week who said, look, don't think of it as any of that. Think of these first, six, first five verses as simply a, um, an image field. He's giving us these various images that represent things, but he doesn't really explain them. This is just a, an image field. It's like a canvas that a bunch of paint's been thrown on, and somebody needs to explain what's there. And most scholars believe that the sheep pen here is a metaphor symbolizing Israel and Judaism. Religious people, God's people, who in large part have gone astray, And the shepherd, obviously being Jesus, enters the pen, the good shepherd, the true shepherd, and he calls his sheep to come out from the others. So this group in the pen is not necessarily, they're not all necessarily Jesus' sheep. And that's why the analogy seems to, to make sense this way, at least this way of thinking about it. Within this pen that the good shepherd steps into, not all of them are his sheep. He is stepping into Israel. He's stepping into Judaism. And he is calling out his sheep so that he can lead them into pasture, which is an analogy of salvation, relationship to God, reconciliation, all those salvific terms. And from the divine perspective, this is what Jesus is doing in the Gospel of John. He is calling his sheep to himself. He is calling them out away from the other sheep. He's calling them to himself. He is gathering his flock. And normally a human shepherd, a, nor, a human shepherd would do this with a distinct whistle or call. Jesus, however, doesn't do that. He calls each one of them by name. You know how you became a shepherd of Jesus if you are one? Because one day the shepherd came and he says, Chuck, come over here. Danny, you're mine. Allie, come here. Ben, you're mine. And on and on and on. Calls us by name. He knew us from before the foundation of the world. His Father gave us to him. And he knew us before we ever knew him. We see this throughout the gospel. Um, We see this throughout John's gospel when Jesus frequently refers to the Father giving them to him. Turn with me back to John 6, 37. John 6, 37. I was trying to remember a thought here, and it just occurred to me again. 
in parallel to this, and that is, uh, I don't have this in my notes, but I remember in John, frequently, Jesus would say things like this to the Pharisees. You don't believe me because, now how would you finish that sentence? You haven't seen all the evidence, maybe. You don't believe me because you're against religion. You don't believe me because you worship someone else. No, Jesus says, you don't believe me because you are not one of mine. You are not my sheep. That's why you don't believe me. And you look at that and you go, hey, that sounds backwards. Don't you have to believe him to become a sheep? From a human perspective, the answer to that question is yes. From a divine perspective, oh, there's much more going on here. John 6, and I hope you're in John 6. I gave you enough time. Verse 37, watch this. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. So here's this picture. Father gives to the Son almost a list. Here's their names. When you call, they will come. When you call, they will come. John 6, 44. No one can come to me, Jesus says, unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 65. And he was saying, for this reason I have sent to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. And then back here in chapter 10, verse 29. Listen carefully to the way he words this. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. If you belong to Jesus, you know why you belong to Jesus? Because one day in eternity past, before the foundation of the world, before God said yes, and it happened, stars burst into existence, plants, animals, man, angels. Before any of that, before they pushed the button, so to speak, let's do this. God the Father meets with God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, and he says, you've got to put on your sanctified imagination here, uh, connecting it with other scriptures, but God the Father, in effect, says to the Son, Son, I love you, and I want to do something for you. That's going to be glorious and amazing. Never happened before. I mean, if you can speak in terms of time when you're living in eternity. Here's what I want to do, son. Next to me, you're the most glorious thing in the universe. I want to take your glory and go public. I want there to be other beings who can see you and exalt in you, and glory in you, and find their joy in you, to magnify the glory of your name. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to create this little blue ball, (laughs) earth, populate it with people, and all kinds of other wonderful things that will glorify you too. Oh, but those people, they're going to be uniquely equipped 
to bear our image and to declare your glory. To declare your glory like the water covers the sea and to do it for eternity. Now here's what I need you to do. Problem is, they're going to sin. They're going to sin. And you're going to go down there and redeem them with your own precious blood. And they will sing your praises forever. What do you think? And Jesus says, anything you say, I'm in. All of this happening in an eternity past. Now, I know that's, that's a very common and how can we speculate except for texts further in the New Testament? This is what's going on here. God the Father in eternity past laid it all out. The whole thing begins in the infinite depths of the mind of the Father. We become Jesus' sheep because the Father gives us to him. Now turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1 because the Apostle Paul says this and I was here last night studying this partly because I usually don't stay late on Saturday night, but I mean, just this one point, there's so much. I mean, where do you begin? Where do you cut it off? I mean, we only have until a little bit after noon, and then I got to stop. Unless you want to keep going. Okay, I'll stop. And all the children said, oh, praise the Lord. Ephesians 1, listen to this. Blessed be the God and Father. Now just stop there. You see what Paul's doing from the beginning? He's saying, I want you, stop thinking about what God can do for you. Just stop. Let's spend a little time here blessing his name, glorifying him, magnifying his glory, telling him how awesome we think he is. That's what bless the Lord kind of means. Bless the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Okay, Paul, tell me, what are the heavenly blessings so I can bless the Lord? Verse 4, just as he chose us in him that is in Christ, when? Before the foundation of the world. That we would be holy and blameless before him. That's something that he intends to do. In love. That answers the question, why? Why would you do this for us, God? In love, he predestined us to the adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. You see this connection? Us, Christ, God, the Father. According to, okay, so we already have love, and here is the kindness, the kind intention of his will. Love and kindness motivated him to do this to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in Christ. Beloved, this is what it's about. He chose us before the foundation of the world, motivated by love. He predestined, he adopted, he poured out his kind intention upon us. And he free, freely bestowed all of it on us in Jesus 
through Jesus and all empowered by the Spirit. Beautiful. It's like, so what we just did, we got this little treasure chest called Ephesians 1, 3, 4, 5, and 6. Cracked it open. Diamond, ruby, emerald, sapphire, gold, treasure. You just start picking them out. I mean, it's just the beginning of Ephesians chapter 1. It goes on and on. I mean, the chest gets bigger and bigger and bigger. It's impossible to comprehend the infinite depths of the love of God for us. You see, becoming one of Jesus' beloved sheep doesn't begin with us. It began before the foundation of the world when in the mystery of his providence, God the Father chose some to be the special objects of his infinite love and kindness, not because of their obedience. Nobody obeys their way into relationship with Jesus. Not because of their beauty. He didn't have anything to do with that anyway. Not because of your nationality or your ethnicity. But rather, because of God's infinite love and mercy, he was motivated by nothing outside of himself but his own good pleasure. And he expresses that kindness by giving us as a gift to his son. It's breathtaking. To Israel, the Lord said this, back in Isaiah 43, verse 1, But now, thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. And you know what? That, that, us evangelical Christians, that doesn't bother us much when we think about these doctrines of Jesus predestining and calling. And, and we understand one of the names for Israel is God's chosen people. And we're good with that. But when we start thinking about God choosing Mark and Karen and Judy and Chris and Shana and Donna and individuals. We get a little freaked out by that. And I would just say to you, don't. Let God be God. He's gonna anyway. You want to know why Jesus is worthy of your trust as shepherd of your life and your soul? It's because he chose you and loved you from before the foundation of the world. Long before you were born, he set his affection on you, and he planned to make you his own. Beloved, this is, this is the picture of adoption, isn't it? This is adoption. This is the story of a man of great means, who has pity on a helpless child and resolves to sell himself dearly 
and spare no expense to rescue that child. He will willingly give all that he has, even his own life, to rescue you from the misfortunes you would otherwise face. He will call you by name, and he will make you his own, and he will give you his name, and you will become a child of God. You will be called Christian. Little Christ, little Messiah. Because your job is the same as his, in effect, to call the nations to find their joy in a forgiving, redeeming God. In Syria, no, in Iraq today, you know what they're doing? You know what ISIS is doing? ISIS is going around and they're identifying all the Christians. And not necessarily killing them all. Um, They're wanting to make money off of this. So they go around and they, they find their home and they take red spray paint and they make this what looks like almost a full circle with a little hyphen at the top, a little accent mark. It looks like to us at the top. And it identifies them. It's big, big circle. Almost big as, you know, section of door. And, um, and that tells everybody where the Christians live, and they give them choice. Uh, you can either leave, you can pay a big fine, you can convert to Islam, or you can die. Okay? And I think some of those go together. But, um, but you, know what, you know what the circle on the door means? It's actually, in, in Arabic, it is the letter N. And it means... Nazarene, you are a follower of that Nazarene. By the way, that's how we became, why they started calling us Christians in Antioch. It was the same thing. They would put some mark, maybe it was just verbal, oh, you're a Christian, you're a follower of the Christ. And the Christian says, that works for us. That's what we call us now. The same thing has happened in Iraq. We're the Nazarenes. We're the followers of Jesus. He calls you by name and he gives you his name. This is the picture of adoption. The point of these verses is is how Jesus forms his flock. That's that's the whole thing here. How Jesus is forming his flock, verses 1 through 5. And people come to Jesus because he calls them individually. He calls them by name. They follow him because they belong to him. And in the case of John 10, the sheep are called out of Judaism. In our case, we're called out of the world. And as we'll see later on, his call was the call of redemption. He purchased or redeemed us, which is why Paul will later say, do you not know that you are not your own? You have been bought with a price. Again, we're back to lordship. If he's your shepherd, you follow him. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. You are not your own. And like every faithful shepherd of the sheep, after calling us by name and making us his own, he places a mark on us that indicates that we belong to him. This is sweet. I like this part. Philip Keller, writing of his experience as a shepherd, says this. The day I, bur- I bought my first 30 ewes, sheep, my neighbor and I sat on the dusty corral rail that enclosed the sheep pens and admired the choice, strong, well-bred ewes that had just become mine. And turning to me, he handed me a large, sharp killing knife and remarked tersely, well, Philip, they're yours. 
Now you have to put your mark on them. I knew exactly what he meant, he writes. Each shepherd has his own distinct earmark, which he cuts into one of the ears of the sheep. In this way, even at a distance, it is easy to determine whom the sheep, to whom the sheep belongs. On this point, Charles Spurgeon, a hundred years before Philip Keller, looks at this passage of Scripture and observes that every one of the Lord's sheep have two identifying marks, and they're given to us in a couple of places, but most succinctly in verse 27. Verse 27, look at that with me. We are in John chapter 10. I love this verse. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. Everyone who belongs to him has one mark on his ear, Spurgeon says, and one mark on his foot. The mark on the ear, my sheep hear my voice. The mark on the foot, they follow me. Those who belong to Jesus love to hear his voice. It's a mark of a true believer. They love the word of God. They're not listening for extraterrestrial signals or super spiritual communication directly from God in some kind of new revelation. They love his word. Like David, their hearts say, Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. I mean, you get the impression David knew that from personal experience. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. I know that from personal experience. The precepts of the Lord are right. They're rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Discernment. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, and sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. And in keeping them, that is, obeying them, there is great reward. Great reward. How do you know you were one of Jesus' beloved sheep. Do you have his earmark? He loved to hear his word. I meant to look it up before I came to the second service, but um, there were two men living in the 1600s, one by the name of John Owen and one by the name of John um, Bunyan. John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress. John Bunyan was a tinker. You know what a tinker is? Um, a tinker back then was a mender of pots, and he would tinker literally with pots. And it was uh, an onomatopoetic word. If, if Matt were here, he would like me saying that. And you bring in a broken pot, and he would tinker with it. He'd fix it. He could weld things back together. He, could, he, was, he was a mender of, of small metal objects, and he was poor. And he had a little blind girl and a wife. Um, who was actually his second wife, who had to take care of his children and his little blind girl. And he was arrested for preaching and put in jail. And all he had to do was say he wouldn't preach anymore, and they'd let him out of jail. And he would say, well, I could do that, but it would make a butchery of my conscience because God had called him to preach. And he was a fantastic 
preacher, though fairly uneducated, compared to John Owen. John Owen was the chaplain for Oliver Cromwell's army. He was friend of the king. He preached at the castle. And he was a learned man. And one day, I forget which king he served directly under. It may have been Cromwell, who was the Lord Protector at the time. And maybe it was him who said to Owen, why is it? that you, a man of such great learning, spend so much time going to uh, where Bunyan lives and listening to that poor tinker. And Owen said, Oh, my, my king, if I had but a small measure of that poor tinker's ability to proclaim the truth of God, I would give up all of my learning. You know why? My sheep hear my voice. They love what I say. They love it. Um, what's the footmark? It's the earmark. What's the footmark? Footmark is this. They follow me. This is more than professing that you love Jesus. It's having a love for Jesus that leads you to obedience to his word. Notice, it's a love for Christ that leads you to obedience. It's not obedience alone. Any, any Pharisee can do that. But it's a love of Christ that compels us, constrains us, motivates us, fuels us to obey his word. It's having a love for Jesus that leads you to that obedience. It's, it's good to listen to the word of God. But Jesus says in Luke 8, 18, take care how. You listen. Anybody can listen. The story of the wise man and the foolish man was part of his example in Luke chapter 6. A couple chapters, same sequence of messages, that same, mes- same message, different parables and teachings there in 6, 7, and 8. Wise man and the foolish man. You remember that song, children? The wise man built his house upon the rock. Remember that? And the foolish man in the storm And the walls came tumbling down. That's the abbreviated version. Um, That story is great. We use that in counseling all the time. Here's two men, a lot of similarities. Both build a house. That's their life. Um, Both of them faced a storm. By the way, the storm there, I don't think it's just hardship in this life. Application for that, yes. But the storm is the, the coming judgment of the Lord in the last day when determination will be made whether you belong to him or not. Um, The third thing that they had in common is both of them heard, they listened to the words of Jesus. But in the last day when the storm comes, the wise man's house stood firm because it was built on the rock. And the foolish man's house was destroyed because he had no foundation. And in Luke, the passage that unpacks this more fully than the Matthew version of it says the difference was the wise man dug down deep like piers here in Texas to fix the foundation, dug down to the limestone, dug down to the rock, which is the word of God. What does that mean? The difference between the wise man and the foolish man was not that they didn't hear. The difference was the wise man heard 
and obeyed. He obeyed. Later, Jesus would say, when they come and tell him, your mother and your brothers are outside wanting to come in to see you. Actually, they wanted to collect him because they thought he was going crazy. And Jesus says these words, who are my mother and my brothers? My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Same message. And it's just a few verses before that in chapter 8, verse 18, where he says, therefore, take care how you listen. And I would dare say that there are some of you here right now who are listening, and you have no intention of obeying. Beware. Beware. Do you have the good shepherd's mark on your ear and on your foot? Do you love him and obey him? And nobody does that perfectly. We're not talking about perfection. We're talking about direction. You're becoming more and more like Christ. For the sheep of God's pasture, the word of the good shepherd, the words of the good shepherd are life. They are peace. They are security. They are our refuge, our strength, our food, our wisdom, our confidence, our hope. And when we walk contrary to the words of the shepherd, we end up like Shrek, the sheep, afraid of the shearing. We don't want the discomfort of that. I mean, it's scary to have that guy come with a knife or shears and to start scraping us clean of all that. We don't want that. We want to be funky and free. We want to go out and do our own thing. And we become helpless, vulnerable, and on our own like a sheep without a shepherd. It's a bad place to be. Do you have the earmark? Do you love to hear it, his word? Do you have the footmark? Do you obey what you hear? He calls you by name, and he puts his mark upon you. I'm trying to think of an illustration for that. And here's the best I can come up with. When I was a kid, going to um, Bible Baptist Church in Hamilton Township, New Jersey, just outside of Trenton, we had a softball team, kind of a volunteer thing. And there were two older guys. I was real young. I was early teenage years. And two older guys who were both very athletic. One of them was a dear friend of mine who mentored me. He's the one who talked to me into going to Word of Life Bible Institute when I graduated, try to sort my life out and come to know the Savior, which I did. But I remember one day where, okay, we're all going to line up and they're going to choose teams. I always hated those times. And because, uh, on the one hand, I wasn't a nerd because nerd assumes that you're smart. And I wasn't that, as my grades demonstrated for many years. And I wasn't an athlete, so I didn't fit into that category. And I just kind of fell through the middle where, there, you know, I didn't have a whole lot to offer. And here we are getting ready to play softball, and I got nothing. I got nothing. Okay, so I'm going to be the last guy picked. I'm, you never get used to that, but I'm getting used to it, you know. And there I was waiting, and okay, now we're going to start choosing teams. And, and uh, there's a bunch of people there. There's probably 20, 25 of us got to divide up. And uh, this friend of mine, I still remember his name. His name was Mason Hughes. He, he's now a pastor out in, I think, New Mexico. And, um, and he was one of the coaches. And so they started calling names. About the third name, I'm sitting there looking at the daisies, you know, kicking the sand, and I hear, Danny. Danny. That's what everybody called me back then. 
come. You're on my team. Here's your jersey. He called me by name, and he gave me a mark to identify me as associated with him and his team. That was a little thing. I didn't realize how significant it was until I started thinking about it yesterday. What a perfect picture. This is what the good shepherd does. You say, I got nothing to offer him. I feel that. You know what that's like? Got nothing. You do have something. You have all of your sin to offer him. How much of that do you got? Got a lot of that. All right, and you got something to offer. All your demerit. And perhaps this morning he's calling you by name. And he's wanting to put his mark upon you. You know why you should be willing to give up all that you hope and dream and desire? Your own plans, your own self-government, and turn your whole life over to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he loves you. He loves you. Not because you're worth all of that. Not because you're that beautiful. That doesn't have anything to do with it. It's because he is infinite in all of his perfections. And some of those perfections are love, grace, mercy, kindness. And it's all yours in Christ if you will have it. Oh, beloved, I want you to see this text from this text and what a profound and amazing privilege it is to be a sheep who, by the tender mercies and sovereign grace of the Father, you belong to Jesus, to the Good Shepherd. Because there is no greater comfort and security on earth than to know that you belong to him. Let's pray. Father, I praise you for these truths. And Lord, I, I struggle to communicate them adequately. So I pray that you would send your spirit to do what I cannot, that you would be glorified in our glorying in Jesus, our good shepherd. To him be all the glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.